there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. Since this is on the shaping of a Christian family, some of you may feel that it doesn't apply to you. Let's remember that as Christians, we are all members of a Christian family. And the principles that apply of love and self-giving and sacrifice and giving way to others' preferences and all those things apply equally in the larger family as they do in any individual Christian home. So I would hope that you will be able to make applications as I talk about these things. <clears throat> we are sisters in Christ. We are mothers also. Whether God has given us the privilege of being biologically mothers or not, I do believe that because God has created us female, that we are meant to be mothers, and all of us bear the physical characteristics of what it takes to be bearers and nurturers. And we are reminded every month of the sacrifice. I mean, that is, to me, this is one of the visible signs of an invisible reality. Everything in life speaks to me of the principles of the cross and sacrifice and self-giving and my life for yours and certainly one of the most obvious human illustrations of this spiritual principle is motherhood. A mother puts her life on the line when she becomes pregnant and she spends nine months of more or less discomfort and when the child is actually born she puts her life line on, literally on the line again in order to give that little life life. She gives her life. She's saying, my life for yours. And this is the principle of the cross. And that's only the beginning, isn't it? When you bring that baby home, it's my life for yours, 24 hours a day, in one form or another. And so it is supposed to be with all of us. And one of the things that really grieves me is to see that there's so little understanding in most churches of that passage in Titus 2, 3 to 5, that older women are to mother the younger women. Remember that you are an older woman. If you're 20 years old, the 15-year-old is looking to you for an example. My 13-year-old granddaughter has a dear friend who's about 30 years old. She's a Campus Crusade staff member who is a great example to Elizabeth, and I'm so grateful for that. I've had many examples in my life. When I was nine years old, my 15-year-old next-door neighbor, whose name was Ruth Ritchie, we lived in Moorestown, New Jersey at that time, and Ruth was a beautiful Christian girl whom I wanted to imitate in every way. She was kind to this skinny little nine-year-old girl next door, which is not really very common among teenage kids. They're not going to give a thought to a nine-year-old. 
And I'm sure Ruth Ritchie didn't have any idea that this child was watching everything she did. I wanted to look like her and talk like her and wear my hair like her and dress like her and do everything that Ruth Ritchie did. Because to me, she was an older woman. She was an adult. There wasn't any question in my mind about that. So don't feel exempt because you're only 25 years old or whatever. And the older we get and the grayer or whiter our hair, I think the heavier our responsibility. Because God has given us experience and wisdom, which we have no right to keep to ourselves. I've had young women tell me that they've actually gone to older women in the church and asked them if they would do what Titus 2, 3 to 5 commands us older women to do. Teach the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be chaste, to be pure, to be keepers at home, in order that the word of God may not be dishonored. And some of those older women have said, oh, well, you know, I really, I wouldn't know how to do that, or I don't have time. Well, why don't they have time? Or they've said, well, you know, I did my job. My kids are all grown up now, and now it's my time to do something for myself. Where have they heard this? Well, the world, of course, but it's crept into the church. Lots of Christians are telling each other the same thing. You know, it's your turn, it's your turn now to go and get yourself that degree, go on a cruise, learn underwater macrame or some stupid thing. <laughs> I mean, God help us all. <laughs> There's nothing sinful about going on a cruise or getting a, de getting a degree or learning underwater macrame, but my question is, can you do that and do all the things that God tells us we are supposed to do? How can we be those spiritual mothers Amy Carmichael was my spiritual mother, among others, a single woman all her life. Three of my five most prominent spiritual mothers were single women. So you're not exempt. Well, that's just by way of introduction. When we become parents, whether spiritually or biologically, if we never before sensed our need of mercy and grace and help in time of need, that is the time. I think God gives us animals and children to humble us. <laughs> I really do. My little dog, Macduff, humbled me very often. Wonderful little black Scotty dog with those little pointy ears and that square beard and those bright eyes. And I would look at him and I'd think he sees the face of the father, you know. I don't know that he knows that, but like children, he's, he's innocent. In fact, he's sinless unlike children. And he just reminded me that God designed that wonderful little dog, and God assigned him to me. I really felt that Macduff was assigned. But the day my daughter Valerie was born, I was in tears, not only of joy, but tears of overwhelming consciousness of my inadequacy. Is there any mother who really thinks that can't realize that she's not up to this job. I looked at that wonderful little package and I thought to myself, there's no way that I can mother this baby as she needs to be mothered. Lord, you're going to have to help me. And I looked at the nurse who attended me. The doctor and nurse were husband and wife. This was in a missionary home. This was not in a hospital. 
And they had seven children. And I looked at that nurse as she sat on my bed that afternoon holding Valerie in her arms, and I thought, she's been through this seven times. How does anybody ever go through it twice? And I've heard it said that if the memory of pain were very vivid, there would never have been a second child born in the world. We forget what pain is really like, God, and that's one of the mercies of God. But she just looked there at that little girl, and she looked at me, and she said, oh, she's, you're getting me all inspired. And her eyes were just <laughs> shining. <laughs> but I just realized my helplessness and my need of mercy and grace and help every day. And I'm very conscious of that when I go visit my daughter and see what she has to cope with with her children and how every day she has to be on her knees. And she will call me sometimes in the morning in tears and tell me that she needs help for this or that. Please pray for me, Mama. And when I hear the phone ring before 8 o'clock in the morning, which of course is before 5 o'clock in the morning in California, I sort of brace myself and think, what's happened? And sometimes it's a tearful voice, voice saying, Mama, pray for me. <laughs> so I do, of course. But I want to just give you a little overview, a few glimpses of the kind of thing that uh, shaped our Christian family. And I've got nine things on this list. And we have 40 minutes, so we'll see what we can do here. The first thing was is the authority of Christ. That was the foundation of our home. And over the doorbell, there was a little brass plate that said, a very small brass plate that said, Christ is the head of this house, the unseen guest at every meal, the silent listener to every conversation. And that sobers one if one thinks about it. My parents knew that they belonged to Christ. They were his property. And that this home was his home. And that what we did in that house, he was watching, and they wanted him to be glorified. We are redeemed and loved. He has created us, he has redeemed us, he has formed us, he has called us by his name, as it says in Isaiah 43.1, and he says, you are mine. And in 1 Corinthians 6.20, we read, you are not your own, you are bought with a price. The world is telling us, be your own person. It's your body, you have a right to do what you want with it, do your own thing, if it feels good, do it. If it doesn't feel good, forget it. And we're just being constantly showered with this kind of rubbish. So we have to go back constantly to the straight edge of Scripture to find out how crooked we are. Well, the authority of Christ was the authority under which my parents operated. And I, I would say that the, the heart of the godliness of our home was the prayers of my parents. My father disciplined himself to get up between 4.30 and 5 every morning in order to spend time alone with the Lord, with his Bible and with his prayer, his, in his prayers. And people would say to him sometimes, 
how do you do it? Back in those days, you know, we didn't know all this nonsense about morning people and afternoon people. I mean, we would have been in trouble if we had, because my father, like most fathers, had to work eight hours a day, and it didn't make any difference whether he's a morning person or an afternoon person. If he was going to have time with the Lord, it had to be before the day began. And for most of us, if we're honest about our schedules, we know that there really isn't any other time of the day that we're going to be uninterrupted unless we get up early in the morning. So his answer to how do you do it was, I have to start the night before. You can't do all the things that everybody thinks you ought to do in the evenings. You have to go to bed. And that's sacrifice, isn't it? Relatively trivial, but still it's sacrifice. What is the most important thing? Is it God or is it all these other things that everybody else tells you you must do or see or go to? And we knew when we came to breakfast at 7 o'clock that our father had been on his knees in his little study praying for us and reading his Bible and talking to God. Second thing is order. First thing was the authority of Christ. The second thing was order. My parents understood and accepted God's order in marriage which is spelled out very simply and clearly in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands because they're so smart. Is that what it says? Because they're bigger than you are. Because they're stronger than you are. Because they're more intelligent than you are. Because they're more spiritual than you are. Because they're always right. Is that what it says? It doesn't say anything of the kind. It just says, submit yourselves un to, your, to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, this man that I'm married to is not the Lord, but I am to submit to him as to the Lord. My submission to Lars is my submission to God. And if I refuse to submit to my husband, I am taking issue with God's order. And that's risky. That's very risky. We are commanded to submit to our husbands. Now, I know that there will undoubtedly be some questions in the pile that come up here, unless they've been weeded out by somebody else, on this question of submission. And it's something we could spend the rest of the day on. I'm not going to talk about it because we do know what it means. When we're told that we have to submit to civil authorities and policemen and laws, we know exactly what that means. We do not have to study the Greek words and go through endless tomes trying to find out what it means. It means to be under, to be subordinate, subject, as a soldier is subject to his commanding officer. Not because the commanding officer is necessarily a better person, but because that's the order of the military. And this is God's order, not to put us down, not because we're incompetent, and we need to get that straight in our minds. Our submission is not an admission of inferiority or incompetence. It is obedience to God. It is for our freedom. Any organization knows that you can't have two chief executive officers. Somebody has to be the place where the buck stops. And it's a great relief to me, having been single most of my life, 
to have a husband at whose desk the buck stops. The final decision is Lars's. If he's mistaken, that's not my problem. That's that's his problem. He has to answer with God. Thank you. I don't think I've ever spoken to an audience where I got more than one amen, and that would have been a very timid one. So somebody here is getting the right teaching. Thank God for that. So my parents, I don't remember there was ever any discussion about it because it's in the Bible and that was the end of it. The feminist movement hadn't started back in those days, so there was didn't have to be. God's order should be visible in all kinds of ways. And here's another great principle of the Christian life. Everything in life is a visible sign of an invisible reality. My little dog, Scotty, my little Scotty dog, Macduff, was a visible sign to me of the love of God, the imagination of a creator who could make a clam and a Scotty dog and a giraffe. (laughs) That's my creator. Everything in life is a visible sign of an invisible reality. And when I walk, if I were to be invited to your house and I was given the privilege of walking into your house, immediately I would take in everything in the room and I would know some things about you. These would be visible signs of who you are what kind of taste you have in pictures, in colors, in arrangement of the furniture. All of these things are visible signs. And one of the visible signs of the invisible reality of God's order in my father's mind was punctuality. And he taught us that to be late is to steal from other people the most precious commodity they own, which is time. When you make people wait for you, you are stealing. The Bible says thou shalt not steal. So when they said breakfast was at 7 o'clock, they did not mean breakfast was at 7.01. Now, you see, there couldn't be any flexibility. Oh, well, we like to be kind of flexible and laid back. Well, you can be in, in many ways, but we couldn't in our house because my father had to make the eight, the 7.40 train. The 7.40 train was not at 7.41. And everything had to be absolutely on time or we would not be able to have a leisurely family breakfast, which my father insisted on. There was no frantic rush and family prayers following breakfast. And that was every morning. People say, oh, well, you could never do that nowadays. And I would say you could never do it back then either. There's never been a time you could do it without sacrifice and self-discipline. And my father did it. He figured if my mother was to give us three physical meals per day, he was to give us spiritual food. And he took very seriously his position as the priest in the family and the head of the family. So that punctuality was ingrained in us. And to this day, I think all six of us are punctual. If I say I'm going to be there at 10 o'clock, I am going to be there at 10 o'clock, I have to get there on my stomach, unless something utterly out of my control happens. And usually the things which are out of our control that happen shouldn't keep us from getting there on time if we plan enough ahead of time to allow for some of those things. You know, you have to allow for a certain amount of exigencies. Another sign, visible sign of the invisible reality of order, was that there was a place for everything. And in our family, the rule was that everything was supposed to be in its place. Now, please, let me say right here that 
I didn't come from a perfect family. We didn't have a perfect home. Not everything was in his place all the time. If there isn't a place for everything, then you've got too many things. And you need to get rid of some of them. Most of us have too many things. And I'm constantly, constantly cleaning out the closets. Somebody gave me this dress. Isn't this a nice dress? I like this dress. It's a hand-me-down. Well, when this dress comes into the house, another dress goes out to somebody else that needs it. And that's the way I keep my life. When a pile of books comes into the house, I've only got X number of bookshelves. I don't have any more bookshelves. I can't stand to see books lying across the tops of books and bookshelves. And so I weed out some books and take them to the library or to the seminary library that can use them. If your children tell me, I don't know where it goes, that's your fault. If you are saying, well, we really don't have a place for that, then you have to get rid of something so that you can have a place for something that you want to keep. Number three is the authority of the word. First of all, we were under the authority of God's word. When we'd have discussions at the family dinner table, which we usually did, the first question that would be asked, if there was any kind of question or conflict, would be, does God have anything to say about this? And usually my father could give us a scripture reference, and we would have to look it up. And we would immediately settle the argument by what God has to say about it. We kept, my father kept a dictionary within reach of the dining room table, and whenever there was a discussion about the meaning or pronunciation of a word, he would hand the dictionary to the child, we would have to look up the word, and all of us would have to learn it. But my father himself was under the authority of God's word, and therefore he expected us to be under the authority of his word. And you cannot discipline your children if you haven't disciplined yourself. So the first thing is for the parents themselves to be under the authority of God's word. The biggest mistake and the most common mistake that I see young parents making, and we see the evidence everywhere we go, not only in the airports where the children are going bananas, but in church basements, when there are church suppers and meetings, children racing around, tearing up the hymn books, banging on the piano, shouting so that it's impossible to carry on conversation around the supper table or whatever. Now, maybe I'm talking to people who don't come from that kind of a church, but believe me, we've seen a lot of them. The mistake that parents are making is not establishing verbal authority. And I mean verbal authority. By that I mean you've got to teach your child to obey your word. How are they going to learn to obey God's word if they don't obey yours? I think it's been much easier for us six children to learn that God means exactly what he says and that our trust, that our happiness will lie in obedience to that word than it is for people who have grown up in homes where there was no verbal authority from the parents. Now for some very practical suggestions, how do you go about this? Maybe some of you have not adequately established verbal authority. You tell your three-year-old to come, and he doesn't come. And you say six times, and finally you get mad, and maybe you jump up and go and grab him, at which point you have taught him what? 
that he doesn't have to come the first time or the second or the third or the sixth. You have also taught him that he doesn't have to move at all because you're going to move him. <laughs> you trained him that way. So uh, let me just give you one practical suggestion. There are a lot of other things that could be said under this heading. But I think that when a child begins to crawl is the most crucial time. If you haven't established verbal authority before he begins to crawl, you certainly better start doing it then because he's going to get into things. He's going to pull things off the coffee table and he's going to pull the tablecloth off with all the dishes on it and he's going to go for the book bookcase. And that's what Valerie did. She went for the bookcase. Now we were living in a very, very civilized jungle house that Jim had built for us. He was still in the process of building it, really, but we had actually floors and a wall and furniture in that house. I didn't live in many houses like that, but we had one bookcase with very precious books. Jim and I were both great book lovers, and we didn't have very many books in the jungle, so they were very precious. And as Valerie started to crawl, she headed for the bookcase. And Jim and I were both sitting there in the room, and Jim said, Valerie speaking in a normal tone of voice, and she turned around and looked at him, and he got eye contact as she moved toward the bookcase, and he said, no. Now, any seven-month-old child knows what no means, if you've said it to him before. They know what it means. They know by the tone of authority, there's just something about your touch and the tone of your voice that establishes authority. She knew that her father meant exactly what he said, but she proceeded, and she grabbed that book out of there, and she tore a page before we even had a chance to stop her. She got a spanking. That was the first, and as far as I can remember, the last spanking that she got from her father, because he died when she was 10 months old. And he said, don't touch those books. Now, of course, she wasn't talking at this age. She couldn't speak those words, but she understood them. Well, what happens the next day? She starts for the bookcase again, looking over her shoulder, very <laughs> deliberately and consciously saying, well, you meant it yesterday, but maybe you've changed the rules today. I'm going to test the rules. And I don't remember whether it was Jim or I, I just said, Valerie, no. You know, she never touched those books again. You start early enough establishing the fact you mean exactly what you say, and you speak once, having gotten eye contact and spoken the child's name. It's very unfair to be giving directions to a child who's not paying attention and didn't really hear you. You must look them in the eye, speak their name, Speak in a normal tone of voice. There's no need to scream and shout. And you only speak once. When you speak twice, the child knows that he can delay obedience. And my parents treated delayed obedience as disobedience. And my mother kept a little switch over the door of every room in the house. <laughs> a little switch about 18 inches long that will never abuse a child. It's never going to inflict any permanent damage, but it does sting those little bare legs. And that's what she used. And most of the time, she didn't have to use that at all. People get this idea, oh my goodness, that poor Howard family. One man came up to me after I'd spoken on this. He said, boy, I'm sure glad I'm not your brother. And I said, why? And she, he said, I could never survive that kind of rigidity and discipline. 
Well, what I'd forgotten to say was those switches hardly ever got used, you know. Because they were used early enough, we knew that our parents meant what they said. And so all my mother had to do was raise her eyes to the top of the door. <laughs> and we jumped. It does work. It really does work. But you must remember eye contact, speak the name, speak in a normal tone of voice, and speak once. Four simple rules. And I learned those in obedience school when I took my dog. <laughs> Literally. Macduff, being a Scottish terrier, was extremely self-willed. Not strong-willed, you know. The strong-willed person is the one who can say no to himself. Jesus was strong-willed. He could say, not my will. But the child is stubborn and willful. He's not strong-willed at all. He's stubborn, that's all. So you have to nip that in the bud. Let the establish verbal authority. The two words most important to establish are come and no. I don't believe in child-proofing a home. Because if you child-proof the home, then what are you going to do when you go to the grocery store? I was in a Hallmark card store one day, and there was a young mother with a little child in a stroller. And the mother was looking at the cards up here, and the child was pulling all the cards on the bottom row and strewing them around the floor. The mother was totally oblivious. Finally, she turned around, and she saw what happened, and she said, Jennifer, do you see that lady over there? Pointing to the lady who was the clerk in the store. Do you see that lady over there? If she sees what you did, she's going to get mad. Well, how's that for moral training? Anything you can get away with is fine, but if it's going to make somebody mad, if you're going to get caught at it, then you better not do it. But you've got to learn to, you've got to teach the child to say come, and you've got to teach him no. I sat next to a young mother one time, we were waiting for the baggage after uh, a flight, and the carousel hadn't been started yet, but Jennifer's climbing on the carousel. And so the mother's sitting next to me, she said, Jennifer, get off that thing, that's a machine, that's gonna start, you know, you're gonna get hurt. Jennifer, would you come here? Jennifer, come here. Jennifer, I said come here. Jennifer, would you come here? <laughs> Jennifer was, Utterly oblivious. Why? Because her mother had trained her that she doesn't have to budge until she screams, until her mother screams about ten times, and then she will eventually get up and pull her off, which is the mother, what the mother did. She yanks her off, comes over, plunks her down beside us on the bench. How long did it take Jennifer to get back on that carousel? <laughs> you know the answer. You've seen this in these helpless parents. So the authority of the word must be established. Number four is prayer. I've talked about my father's private prayers, mentioned that we had family prayers every morning after breakfast, which included the singing of a hymn, one hymn per day, all the stanzas. We learned hundreds of hymns painlessly this way. And then my father read the Bible, and then we got down on our knees and he prayed, and then we all joined in the Lord's Prayer. Very simple, easy, kind of family devotions, no high-powered no high sharing time or discussion time. You can do that if you want to. But this was about six minutes, probably, six or eight minutes in total. And there were always little children because we had a span of 16 years between the oldest and the youngest. So my father was merciful. We didn't have to sit there very long, but we did have to sit there. We weren't paying very much attention most of the time, but we did have to be quiet 
and we weren't allowed to play with things. My brother Tom was playing with a pencil one time. He was about four years old. And my father stopped his reading and said, Tommy, I want you to put that pencil down. And Tommy looked up with these gorgeous navy blue eyes that he has and black eyelashes and just this seraphic smile. And he said, but Daddy, it says Jesus saves on it. <laughs> Which means that it's a Christian pencil, so he ought to be allowed to play with it. And all of these things are part of our daily offering, aren't they? Prayer is a daily offering to God. And the discipline that it took for my parents to arrange our lives so that we could have quiet time after breakfast and quiet time after dinner. We were not excused from the table until my father had read the Bible again and prayed again. They had the sense not to ask us our opinions about this. We were not polled about the rules in the house. These are the rules, this is our house, as long as you live in this house, this is the way you're going to do things. Like it or lump it. And I th I'm just grateful for that. And we had lots of fun, we had loads of laughter. When we get together now, as we rarely but occasionally do, we laugh our heads off most of the time. So we had fun. Number five is discipline. Self-discipline is the essential prerequisite. There will never be discipline of the children, until you have disciplined yourselves. And discipline should be, as I've called it in the title of my book on this subject, a glad surrender. I suppose one of the most difficult matters for parents to deal with is children who whine. As Valerie has said to me, I can get my children to do what I tell them to do. They do obey me. But how do I get them to obey me cheerfully? So she established a whining chair in the hall. And she announced to the children that anybody who whined would have to sit on that chair for 10 minutes. Well, Christiana, who is one of the more unusual children in the family, I can't imagine where she came from. She doesn't seem to be like anybody else. And she's very creative and very artistic and outgoing and all this sort of thing. And she was only about five years old at the time, and she spoke up and she said, I think that's a good idea. And she said, if anybody whines when they're on the whining chair, I think they should be spanked. <laughs> but this in discipline, and this is covered in my book called Discipline the Glad Surrender, it, it is the discipline of the mind, of the body, of the emotions, and we were not allowed to express how we felt about everything, unless it was going to be for the general good cheer and humor and help of the family. I mean, what is the point of allowing everybody to say everything they think all the time? Can you think of anything more boring? <laughs> One wise mother that I know of required that all complaints be in writing of 200 words or more. <laughs> Try that one. My parents didn't put up a complaint box because if you put up a complaint box, you're going to get complaints, right? Number six, courtesy. Just the simple matter of table manners 
are a visible sign of an invisible reality, which is the principle of my life for yours. In other words, I teach little Johnny to pass the butter to daddy first. Why? Because daddy's more important than I am. Why should I have what I want before I offer to somebody else? Tiny little things like that. A tremendous spiritual principle. If there are five children and you've got four cookies left, what are you going to do? You've got to teach the principle of my life for yours. One of you, unless we're going to break these cookies into four-fifths each, somebody has got to say, my life for yours. Elbows on the table. Why are we not allowed to put elbows on the table and whistle at the table and speak with our mouths full? What difference does it make, really? I mean, these are just rules that somebody made. Every one of them has unselfishness behind it. How does it look, how does it feel when people are sitting at the table with their elbows on the table and they're shoveling the food in, holding their forks wrong? You, you see somebody holding a fork like this, does it make any difference? It does. It, it's, it's not as comfortable and inviting a situation. These rules are small sacrifices. As somebody has said, I don't know if it was Emily Post or maybe somebody like that said, Courtesy is a lot of petty sacrifices. Now, my husband actually does help me in with my chair at the table when there's nobody there to show off for. He opens the car door for me. Why? Because he thinks I'm too feeble to open it for myself? No. My life for yours. One of the things that finally did me in when I was trying to avoid Lars Grin and try to stave him off, and I realized he was closing in for the kill. <laughs> I mean, my mind was totally closed to a third marriage. I mean, totally closed. I was not listening to God or anybody else on that subject. He said to me one day, I want to take care of you. I want to be the one building the fences around you, and I want to stand on all sides. Now, Lars says to me now, he said, I don't know where that ever came from. He said, I must have been my one moment of inspiration. He doesn't really believe that he said that, but I've never forgotten it, of course, and it was the thing that finally tipped the scales in his favor. I want to be the one building the fences around you, and I'm going to stand on all sides, and he stands on all sides in, in all sorts of little courteous ways. As you all can see from just the brief time you've had with him, he's a southern gentleman. And he still believes in being a gentleman and treating ladies like ladies and not as women. So there we are. Courtesy is a visible sign of that great principle of the cross. My life for yours, unselfishness. We weren't allowed to thunder up and down the stairs unless it was a rainy day and Mother had given us permission to play beckon in the house, which is a form of hide-and-seek that can be played in the house. Then, of course, we would have to ask, first of all, is somebody asleep? Is there a baby asleep upstairs? Is somebody got a headache? Matters of courtesy. We had to close doors quietly, and when we didn't, we were made to go out of the room 
and come back in again and close the door right. And that gets very tiresome unless you learn it. Number seven is hospitality. I grew up in the Depression. We ate a lot of macaroni and cheese. I never even heard of a steak, I don't think, until I got to college. We had very little meat in the house. I don't remember ever hearing about the fact that we were deprived. My parents certainly never told us that we were poor. I thought we were quite wealthy because my parents were tithers. And when those poor, out-of-work men would come to the door selling, believe this, you people that are younger, you can't even imagine this, but there were white-collar men who literally were selling shoelaces and pins and needles from door to door. And my mother's instructions to us were, don't buy anything from them, give them a dime out of the tithe box. Well, a dime was more than they would have made on the pins and needles. This was just one of the ways in which my parents were saying, my life for yours. But that's what, that was the time I grew up. There were people, men would come to the back door and ask for a sandwich and a cup of coffee. We can't, we can't imagine things like this now. But that's the way it was. And my mother had a special set of dishes that she would use for those people. And of course, she didn't let them into the house, but they would sit, I can still see a man sitting unshaven, poorly dressed, sitting on the sandbox in the backyard, eating a sandwich that my mother had made for him and giving him a cup of coffee. Nowadays, I suppose that would be an impossibility because of all the awful things that happened, but in those days we didn't think of such things. But somehow my parents always managed to be hospitable. The Bible commands us to be hospitable, and hospitality is one of the graces. They didn't have extra money to buy fancy food for company. All we could do was maybe put a little bit more water in the soup and a couple extra potatoes in the pot and put an extra chair at the table. And my mother was not hung up by what are they going to think of this humble home. My mother came from a relatively well-to-do home where they had two maids and a butler. And she married a poor man, and they were missionaries for the first five years of their married life. And we lived in a double house, what we called a double house in Germantown on Washington Lane, in case any of you know where that is. 103 West Washington Lane. <laughs> that house is still there. It's an entirely black neighborhood. And I went back there with my daughter and visited it a few years ago. And the very kind man who lives there let us in. And we wandered around, and it was just an, ex an incredible experience because it had been 50 years since I was in that house. But it was, as I think of, as I think of it now, and think of what my mother came from, I realized what a, what a humble home it was, and how they always managed to keep a, ge a guest room with six kids. We always had a guest room. We always had suitcases bumping up and down the stairs. We had people constantly in and out, just offering what they had without apologies. Number eight is work. Teach your children to work and start when they're two years old. I have frantic parents telling me I can't get my teenager to mow the lawn or wash the dishes or take the garbage out. 
Well, if they didn't teach the child to work from the time he's two or three years old, how in the world are you going to start when he's 15? I remember seeing a talk show where it was on the subject of parents who are bullied by their children. And here were the, these awful testimonies from parents who couldn't control their teenage kids. And one of them said, if I tell my son to take the garbage out, he will stand there and say to me, I will take the garbage out when I want to. And one of the women in the audience, and I'm always amused because the audiences are usually much wiser than the experts on the panel, <laughs> she stood up and she said, if my son said that to me, he would be wearing that garbage. <laughs> but if you start when they're two years old, they can empty waste baskets. They can take the silverware basket from the dishwasher and climb up on a little stool and put the spoons where the spoons belong and the forks where the forks belong, the knives where the knives belong, and you don't have to spend money on one of those toys that teaches children to put the round thing in the round hole and the triangle in the triangular hole. They can pick up their clothes, they can pick up their toys, they can help you collect things, they can sort laundry at two. Yes, they can, and they love it. I see how little children in my daughter's household love being given real work to do. And I read a story of a father who had called his little boy into the room and he said, now would you, if I gave you a choice between three big sugar cookies and helping me build the fire in this fireplace, which would you take? And the little boy said, I want to build the fire. Teach your children to work. Give them real responsibility. And if you teach the two-year-old that he is to empty three wastebaskets in the house, he must understand that those three wastebaskets will not be emptied unless he does it. Don't you dare do it. If he has to be reminded, fine. That's grace. You give your children rules, rewards, and punishment, and these are the means of grace for those children, which God does for us too, isn't it? Think of how God treats us. He's our father, and we are his very unruly children, and he has to bring us under control. He's merciful, he's gracious, but we know where the rules are, and the happier we will be as we obey. So this too is an offering. I am offering my physical strength to God, I'm offering the work of my hands, the work of my mind, when, when it's that kind of work, whatever it is. And the last thing is responsibility, which includes responsible use of God's gifts. My money is his. When we put our tithe in the offering on a Sunday, it's not to say, 10% belongs to you, God, 90% belongs to me. It is a token that everything belongs to God. He has given it to us to use for our blessing, but he also wants us to remember that we don't have anything that we haven't been given. We have nothing at all. So we must use it responsibly. Teach your children. If you're going to give them an allowance, which I think is a good idea when they're very small, to start them out with a very small allowance, and teach them to tithe. We got a nickel for many years. That was our allowance. And out of that, we had to put a penny. Now that's more than, that's twice the tithe, isn't it? But 
that went into the Sunday school plate. And then teach them to save. As soon as your children start working for money, or if you're going to pay them for doing special jobs around the house, I hope you don't pay them for routine jobs that everybody should be doing because they're members of the family. But if there are special jobs for which you or somebody else pays them, then you need to teach them at that point not only to tithe, but also to save. And I would set a, an amount, at least, that they must save at least this much. How else will they be responsible in the use of money later on? Delayed gratification is a thing that we don't see very much of in the baby boomers, is it? They've got to have it now. Everything their parents have, they've got to have. And their credit cards are up to the limit. My money is his, my possessions are his. All my things. Hudson Taylor went through all his things every year and felt that he had to answer to God for retaining them. And so he would get rid of everything that he had not used in the last year. If you've gone through a year without using it, you don't need it. Somebody else needs it. Give it to them. Water, lights, food, clothes. We were not allowed to waste things. We had two pairs of shoes, one for Sunday, one for everything else. That's all we could possibly afford back in those days. Almost always we wore hand-me-down clothes, so it's no problem to me to wear hand-me-down clothes today. I don't have time to shop. It's not that I don't have the money, but I, I just literally don't have time to shop, so I'm very grateful. We turned off the water when we brushed our teeth. We turned off the lights when we left the room. And I'm saying again, not, we didn't always do it. We had to be corrected. We had to be punished. But this is what it means to shape a Christian family. Our time is up. I'll run through those nine things again just to make sure you got them all. Number one, the authority of Christ. Number two, order. Number three, the authority of the word. Four, prayer. Five, discipline. Six, courtesy. Seven, hospitality. 8, work, 9, responsibility. And you'll find a lot more in my book, of course. I haven't gone through everything that's in that book. But I hope you'll have a good lunch and come back this afternoon for the questions and answers. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember... The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms.